the oncology team is is very focused on on curing the cancer and, and making the patient better but yeah. more needs to be done to you know down the road because survival rates are improving uh, down the road these patients may come up with other problems as a result of those cancer treatments and I think that's important to get that message yeah. out there Welcome to All Things Cardio-Oncology. This is the podcast of the International Cardio-Oncology Society. My name is Steve Caselli. And on this program, most of the time, we spend our time speaking with physicians. And today we have a special opportunity to hear from a different perspective, the cardio-oncology experience, and that's the perspective of a cancer survivor. So it's my pleasure to welcome uh, Dennis Keefe, to our program today. Dennis lives in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and he has agreed to share his story with us. So welcome, Dennis. Thank you, Stephen. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for your invitation. Yeah, we're delighted that you're willing to, to spend this time with us sharing a little bit about your personal experience. And maybe we can sort of pick up the beginning of the story, you were, I take it you grew up in, in Canada and you're uh, a young person, healthy as far as you know, uh, pursuing university studies and a career. And tell us uh, when things began to change for you. Well, I was uh, living and working in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, on the west coast of Canada. And I was uh, pursuing a career in aviation at the time. Um, and I was uh, a bit of a, a bit of a long story. I hope you'll <laughs> you'll endure this. But uh, you know, I I had a few symptoms, uh, and a lot of the early testing was inconclusive. Uh, in July of 1990, I woke in the middle of the night with a sudden onset of significant pain in my right ribs. And Dennis, I I admit, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did yep. did you tell us what at what age did this begin? Oh, I was 27 years old at the time. Okay, okay. Yeah. Great. And, uh, yeah, I was an invincible young 27-year-old. <laughs> yes. So I, so I believed, yeah. Of course. And, and I, yeah, I just woke up in the middle of the night with uh, this real significant pain in my ribs, and, and uh, we did a little research in hospital, and nothing sinister was found, and, and the pain eventually went away at that time. And then uh, a few months later, I had moved on to a new air charter company up in northern Alberta. And I, I started coughing. And I had a deep, heavy cough, but I had no other flu or cold symptoms. And uh, that cough would, would bother me. It would be in the right rear flank, and it, it hurt. Um, in April of 1991, I, I was feeling rather poorly, and I went uh, had a chest x-ray. And again, nothing sinister was found. Mm. Uh, and it was it was quite unusual because I was this, this cough was really um, uh, it was significant. I I believe at the time. And of and course, this is pre-COVID, so you're not alarmed by a cough other than perhaps a flu or a cold symptom. Well, I, I guess I I guess I was concerned. I was alarmed uh, in some respect because it was just as heavy, deep cough that I couldn't seem to shake and nothing really would solve it. 
Uh, but there again, I was a 27 year old guy thinking, you know, I'm invincible and I'm otherwise healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I wasn't, I was, I was discounting it. Really. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. In about May of uh, 1991, so about a month later, I was heading back to northern Ontario to uh, take on a new position out, out east. And uh, my family was living in Edmonton at the time. Uh, and I stopped in to visit with them and have my medical validation certificate renewed for my commercial pilot's license. And I had, uh, again, I had no symptoms other than the occasional deep cough and right rib pain. And part of the process of maintaining a commercial license is similar in in the U.S., where we have to have a medical validation certificate signed by a civil aviation examiner. And I went to see my aviation examiner uh, for that for the uh, revalidation of my medical certificate. And he asked how I was doing. And again, 27 year old guy, I felt pretty darn good. I was going back to work and pretty happy guy chasing a flying career. And I said, yeah, it hurts a little bit when I cough. And uh, he said, where? I said, well, the right flank. And uh, he performed an examination and and, uh, he said, okay, well, let's have an x-ray. This Dr. Scott, Dr. Ian Scott sent me across the street for an x-ray. And literally he slid it up into the screen and we saw a mass in my right rib cage. And uh, we uh, had a good discussion about it, uh, but um, he believed it was pleural fluid, but wanted more investigation prior to signing off on my medical validation. And of course, without that medical validation, my commercial pilot's license was no longer valid and I I could not work. Mm. So he uh, he referred me back to my family physician who ordered a CT. And this is where things get, I guess, a little little more interesting (laughs) if they weren't already. Uh, uh, During the CT, a double needle biopsy was performed and they drew very little blood and no pleural fluid. Hmm. And it was described as a pleural base density found in my right lung base. So I returned to Dr. Scott and asked if he would sign my medical validation. I was anxious to, to get back to work. I had a job waiting for me. Sure. And um, I advised him of the, those biopsy results and he wasn't satisfied. Uh, I asked him what it would take to get my medical validation back because I had to go to work. And he said surgery. Right. And I believe at that very moment, uh, Dr. Ian Scott, uh, my civil aviation medical examiner, um, he saved my life. Uh, wow. And I don't, yeah, I don't, uh, I can't overstate that. Yeah. Um, he was the guy that insisted that further investigation was needed. So he was and clearly suspicious. Yes. Yeah. He was very suspicious. And uh, if I was not a pilot, who needed a medical validation and I had simply ignored my symptoms. I believe my outlook would have been far different than what it was. That's remarkable. Yes. So in July of 1991, it seems so long ago, um, I I was sent to surgery with, with really no expectation that it was anything other than pleural fluid. Uh, again, I was this young 27-year-old guy, pretty, you know, pretty healthy. I felt I was pretty healthy. 
And literally the word cancer never, ever entered my mind. Mm. Um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Nakai, who was a thoracic surgeon, and his team, uh, they performed a right posterior thoracotomy where they found a grapefruit-sized mass in my uh, right ribcage. And so they resected my eighth and ninth ribs, the intercostal muscles, and performed a biopsy of a lesion on my diaphragm. And the pathology of the mass and ribs found malignant small cell tumor that was involving bone and soft tissue. Um, I think they made the assumption there that it was a Ewing sarcoma, and it was later verified by uh, pathology. And I literally, Steve and I had no idea it was cancer until I was visited post-op by my family physician, uh, Dr. Ken Gardner, literally put his hand on my shoulder and said it was cancer. Uh, oh, my yeah. goodness. That's, so here you are, you know, a young, healthy young man at the, you know, front end of a seemingly hopeful career in aviation, and suddenly you hear those words that we all would be terrified by. It's, it's cancer. Do you remember how that hit you hearing that diagnosis initially? Yeah, it, I, I'm sure I had the typical reaction um, that any patient would have uh, when receiving a diagnosis like that. Uh, it was really devastating. It was absolutely unexpected. Yeah. Um, I had gone into the surgery believing they were removing pleural fluid. Um, I was quite anxious to go back flying, and after the diagnosis, uh, you know that it, those immediate feelings of fear and, and sadness. It was it was immense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, a few weeks ago, I was chatting with my sisters, um, who told me something I had never known uh, until quite recently. Um, after my surgery in 1991, my uh, family physician had pulled my family aside and told them the cancer had been found and the prognosis was poor. Uh, he referred to a 15% chance of beating the disease and at that time I you know I don't recall I don't recall that prognosis I don't recall that that devastating you know percentage um, all I heard was I had cancer and you know that that's the only thing I heard so many things kind of blur out at that moment yeah I'm sure that's <laughs> unimaginable yeah. Well, where did things go from there in terms of what, what testing did they do? What was the treatment path from there? And, um, you know, I know that you've been able to piece some of that back together in your own research, but, but where did they go from there? Well, after uh, discharge from the, the hospital, I was referred to the Cross Cancer Clinic here in Edmonton, uh, a fabulous facility. Um, that looks after patients in northern Alberta. Um, I met my oncologist, uh, Dr. Jurgen Jensen. Uh, he assured me they would treat me uh, aggressively, and he was optimistic, but offered a, a conservative 20 to 30 percent uh, five-year survival rate. Mm. Um, again, that's something I just recently learned from my sister. Um, yeah. yeah, so. You know, there were so many difficult you know, parts of this journey, but uh, that, 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 that diagnosis was pretty awful. Yeah.
And can you give us uh, some more details on what the treatment path was from there, just in terms of the specific drugs and, um, you know, regimen of therapy that you were put through at that point? Right, yeah. So his, Dr. Jerry, uh, Jensen's um, plan was to treat it aggressively, and, and uh, um, I was admitted uh, as an inpatient for each chemotherapy treatment. And the plan protocol was five days in the hospital, out for about 17, uh, back in for two days, and then out for 12. And uh, I received high-dose uh, etoposide, ifosfamide, um, over five consecutive days, and then over uh, a, a kind of a one overnight visit, uh, I would get uh, cyclophosphamide, adriamycin, and vincristine, and uh, over that one day. Mm. And over the course of the entire treatment, I received 17 uh, courses of chemotherapy, and then some radiotherapy as well. Well, that I mean that's probably not atypical for some cancer therapies, but that's certainly really intense therapy that you had to undergo. And how how long did that go on, did you say? It was chemo? about, yeah, it was about 14 months of chemotherapy. Okay. And then I had about, a, uh, about six weeks off, and then they started uh, five weeks of uh, daily uh, radiotherapy. Right. Where I uh, they I received five thousand grays uh, over uh, twenty five treatments in five weeks. Goodness. Yeah. This so this is very aggressive cancer treatment. Um, can you describe you know from that point how how did your recovery go after the treatment? Well, it was tough. Um, I I had a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of neutropenic uh, fever episodes um, requiring numerous hospital admissions. Um, one uh, On one occasion, I actually felt quite well, and Dr. Jensen gave me his approval for me to travel, and I left Edmonton and went back out to Vancouver to visit my sister, who was living there at the time. And the next morning, I wake up, and I've got uh, a fever, and I had to go spend... 11 days at the British Columbia Cancer Agency in Vancouver. Mm. But they were, at that time, the, uh, there was a new drug coming out. Uh, and I think it's quite common now, I believe. Uh, GM-CSF, it's the granulis granulocyte macrophage uh, colony stimulating factor. Mm. And to me, the drug was quite new, or, or to my doctors, the drug was quite yeah. new. And my health plan at the time wouldn't cover the cost. So I had used all my savings to pay for that drug. And mm. up here in Canada, we're very, very fortunate in that we have public health care, uh, right. publicly funded health care, but um, there are limitations. Um, sure. at, that, at that time, this drug was not covered. Um, but the results, uh, the results were fantastic. Uh, the body, it helped my body fight off those infections by accelerating the growth of my white blood cells. And after starting the GM-CSF, my uh, recovery after chemotherapy treatments was, was much easier. And so you, you finish up your, your chemo treatments, you, you then go in your course of, of radiotherapy? Yeah, October 1992, uh, I think it was Halloween, uh, in fact. Um, 
the nurse in the uh, in the inpatient ward at the cross cancer clinic. Some of them were dressed up. I remember that. <laughs> but it was my last. Uh, they gave me a great send off, and it was my last chemotherapy treatment in October 1992. And I started uh, my radiotherapy in February of 1993, and had a five week course of treatments. Okay. And then maybe we can fast forward from there. You you did recover, which is remarkable, and you you were able in one sense to to move on with your life and to pursue a career and you you got married along the way had children is that right yeah i i uh, I, I put the uh, you know i tried to put the cancer behind me but it's i think it's impossible it, yeah. there's always an element of fear of recurrence that stayed with sure. me and you know, although those that fear and those memories of you know over time have diminished, but I was uh, I was exceptionally lucky. Uh, the cancer was found early, and my uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, Tracy, was incredibly devoted and caring and loving, and uh, you know she would sleep in a cot beside my bed and she would yeah. step in to help when the nurses were busy. And I can't overstate her care uh, during those times, but I uh, yeah um, I. Somehow she agreed to marry me, so we got married in, <laughs> in 1994, and uh, lucky enough to have uh, four wonderful children. And, and uh, you know, they I wanted to go back flying, um, but when I was ready to go back, and I thankfully got my license reinstated uh, mm -hmm. in Canada, there was no jobs in in the early 90s. It was pretty bad for pilots, so so I moved on to a new career, and I've been there for 28 years. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And then um, tell us, tell us what happened three years ago. Now, when when did you begin to have some symptoms that were once again concerning? Symptoms now of a different kind. Yeah, um, in about 2017, I I started having trouble sleeping. Uh, I had brief episodes where I felt short of breath, and I was increasingly fatigued. And my family physician referred to me uh, to my current cardiologist, uh, Dr. Suhaib Al-Kertaz, uh, for his initial examination. And I had a few cardiac tests, you know, the ECG, the stress echocardiogram. I had a nuclear perfusion scan. And after those tests, I was diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy. And about a year ago, uh, also diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. So now on, on top of the, the cancer, you suddenly find yourself with, with heart disease unexpectedly. Yeah. I, I was, um, you know, a, a young, I guess at that time, 51, 52 years old, I was back playing ba uh, baseball and feeling pretty good. And then my condition started to diminish from there. And uh, the cardiologist has uh, has found these uh, these issues. So how did you then put these two pieces together? You've you've put cancer behind you 30 years ago, and now all of a sudden you have heart trouble. How did you how did you figure out there might be a connection between those two realities? Well, there's there's no significant heart disease in my family, and I 
uh, was curious. Um, I, of course, Dr. Internet uh, <laughs> offers many <laughs> uh, research uh, opportunities, and and yeah. I I was curious. I you know I wanted to know more about my condition and, and what what this is, and uh, I came across uh, some articles that suggested late onset of heart disease was the result of chemotherapeutic agent cardiotoxicities. And I was wondering if I was experiencing that same late effect three decades after chemotherapy. So hmm. I, I requested pa my patient records from the Cross Cancer Clinic. And uh, so through some treatment and discharge summaries, I was able to determine that some of those chemotherapeutic agents uh, that I received during the aggressive uh, cancer treatments may have contributed to possible heart damage. Hmm. Now, were you ever informed at the time of your cancer therapy that some of the agents you were being given had this potential cardiovascular side effect, or did, did anyone ever encourage you to see a cardiologist as, as part of your follow-up screening after your cancer therapy? Well, I remember being advised that they were watching my heart function a few months into the treatments. Okay, um, so during your treatment. Right, and during the chemotherapy treatments, I had a, uh, a MUGA scan that uh, had detailed my, or had reported my ejection fraction had dropped, you know, something like 40%. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a follow-up heart study during the, the time uh, that did report some ejection fraction improvement, but I never met with cardiologists, and I was never referred to a cardiologist uh, following chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And I, in fact, never saw a cardiologist until I started having symptoms in 2017. And, yeah, that was a little concerning to me. Yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, I think that's, you know, not altogether uncommon, which is why we're here having this conversation, is there's there's still, even to this day, I think, a, a lack of sufficient awareness across disciplines that these that these side effects are realities that need to be addressed. There's obviously, we're doing much better today than in the past. Um, but for people who, who went through therapies as you did 20, 30 years ago, those cardiovascular impacts are just showing up today. Well, what what would you want to be sort of a take-home message for other survivors from your experience? Well, I've got a, I guess a few messages. I, you know, a new cancer patient, I think, should lean on every resource at their disposal, including accepting offers of help and fa from family and friends that may offer that, you know, cancer patient greater personal strength and, and hope. It's really important to have, you know, people behind you. Yeah. Um, you know, in my case, my family and friends were were wonderful, and uh, their efforts helped me um, helped me just immeasurably. Um, so, and it helps them too. It, it helps yeah. them feel like they're part of the treatment process, and uh, and kind of reduce their own anguish and feeling of helplessness. Yeah. Um, but in new, I think new cancer patients should also have access to an oncology team that includes a cardiologist. Um, right. You know, I think cancer survivors um, should be, should ask for a referral to a cardiologist to 
to get their baseline studies of their heart functions and then follow up with routine uh, appointments um, to monitor their, their hearts. And it really should start, you know, it, it should start when the chemotherapy starts uh, and follow right through. Yeah, and thankfully, as as the discipline of cardio-oncology has, has developed, there is um, much more opportunity for both, you know, pre-screening and post-screening of cardiovascular issues for cancer survivors and cancer patients. So, um, I'm so grateful for your willingness, Dennis, to share your story with us and your experience, and it's a perfect illustration of why cardio-oncology is continuing to grow so rapidly as a discipline. Cancer patients and survivors of all types are increasingly aware of the hard reality that those saving, life-saving treatments that they're receiving and so desperately need often have potentially serious side effects. Um, but the good news is when, as you're saying, there's a, a team involved that includes cardiology and oncology, many of those risks can be, can be mitigated. Um, so thank you for taking the time today, Dennis, to share with us your experience. It's, it's um, a perfect illustration of why this discipline is so valuable and so important. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Our annual Global Cardio-Oncology Summit, the GCOS meeting, will be a virtual meeting this year due to the global pandemic. It'll be held on Thursday, October 1st. For information, you can go to our website, ic-os.org, and on our homepage, you'll find a link for the conference registration information. We hope you'll be able to join us.